I'm going to read a few verses before and after what's printed in your bulletin, the ones that we read earlier in our responsive reading. So Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what majestic words. How can we do justice to the revelation of who Jesus Christ is? And Lord, all that He is, He has also become for us that we might have life in Him and be reconciled to You, our God and Father. Oh, how grateful we are, how thankful we are. Lord, help us to learn more of Him that we might abide more faithfully in Him, and seek to glorify Him in all that we do or say. We ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you look over at page 6, you'll see kind of a poetic outlaying of uh, this passage. So we're looking here at the Apostle Paul. I want to remind you about another Paul who was... A lot of you who are younger won't remember him, but he was a pretty important figure in the 20th century. His name was Paul Harvey. Before Rush Limbaugh, there was Paul Harvey. And he used to tell us the rest of the story. This little program where he would give little snippets of history, and then there would be a little punchline at the end. One of the ones that I'll always remember, because I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, is about the city of Geneva. If you've ever had a chance to go to Geneva, you know that it's famous for its watches. You can look in the window there. I was there about 20 years ago, coming back from a trip to Israel. $1,000 watch, $1,800 watch, $3,000 watch. Paul Harvey once talked about that. You know why Geneva became so famous for its watches? Because Calvin and the rest of the Geneva Council of Elders required everyone to take all of their gold jewelry that they thought was way too fancy and take it off. And so they're asking themselves, well, what do we do with all this gold? Oh, let's make some watches. Let's do something productive with it. And now you know the rest of the story. Well, Paul Harvey, I'm sure, tells that story better than I did. But 
essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Colossians chapter 1 is he's telling you the rest of the story, and it's a big story. He's telling these Gentile believers, you have gone from being fruitless people who are alien and hostile to God to believing the gospel and to experiencing the redemption that God promised in the prophets. You have been qualified to be, to be granted an inheritance of the saints in light. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness, from being trapped to sin and Satan, and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom you have redemption, in whom you have the true and final exodus that the prophets were looking for, in whom you have the forgiveness of sins, the new covenant. I will write my law on their hearts, and I will remember their sins no more. And we could spend a whole sermon just talking about that, and I probably will sometime with you. But now Paul says, I want you to know the rest of the story. I want you to know how exalted this person is in whom you have redemption. This person in whom you have been delivered from darkness and brought into his kingdom. That person is nothing less than the Lord of creation, and the Lord of redemption. He's the Lord of creation and the Lord of the new creation by whom God is rescuing the entire creation to himself in his son. And so that's basically our two points this morning. He's the Lord of creation, verses 15 to 17. And he's the Lord of the new creation. He's the Lord of redemption, verses 18 through 20. And as Paul talks about this, he, he's either he's put together this poem or he's borrowing it from somebody else as perhaps an early Christian creed, sort of like the way we use the Apostles' Creed, to speak about the profundity and the reality of who Jesus is. He is the Lord of creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, that may be referring to Adamic language, that he is the true human. But I wonder if we might see a parallel here to Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, where we read this kind of language. These last days God has spoken to us by His Son, He whom appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or similarly, when Paul says in another poem that we think, Philippians chapter 2, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God, something that he had to hold on to. You see, he is the exact image of the invisible God in the sense that when you look at Christ, well, what did Jesus say during his ministry? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He, as the second person of the Godhood, as the eternally begotten Son of God, when you see him, you don't just see a man you see the very manifestation of the living God, the Creator God. He is the image of God. 
And of course, the way that relates to Adam in the garden is that when you look at Adam and Eve created in the image of God, they are reflections of Christ. You know, some people use this fancy language of, of archetype and ectype, or prototype and I don't know whatever the other type is, but that's what Adam and Eve were, right? They're the earthly reflections of the living God, and it's Jesus Christ specifically that they are reflecting. <clears throat> he is the firstborn of all creation. Now again, the, the Arians get off track here and want to say that that means that he's a creature, right? He's the first of God's creative acts, and then through him, right, that's why they want to translate John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God, right? The Word was with God, the Word was a God, which is a complete misunderstanding of the way the Greek <coughs> works there. There's essays you can read about that. Um, <clears throat> no, firstborn is a title. So it's not so much an ontological statement about who Christ is, but it's the fact that because God has made all things through him, he is the heir of creation, right? The firstborn gets the double portion. He's the heir. He's the top dog, you might say, in the pecking order. And that's what we can say about Jesus Christ. He wasn't just one who entered creation that we celebrate this time of year in the Christmas story, but he himself is the one through whom God made all things in such a way that he is the heir. He is the firstborn. In him all things were created. Notice how expansive this is. In heaven and on earth. All those, all those confessions of faith, you know, Blessed be the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, right? We sometimes use that as a call to worship in, in churches. Psalm 128, I believe it is. Um, no, 124, excuse me. Um, all those comprehensive statements, all that wonderful language, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, the very opening words of Scripture, God wants us to know that it was, you know, as He spoke, right? Spoke creation into being. And then John comes along and identifies Christ as the Word. He was the agent. And what that means is that creation, we might say, has a, has a sun shape to it. Not S-U-N, but S-O-N. It has a sun shape to it. Creation is created, we could say, for relationship, right? Right at the very beginning. He doesn't leave Adam alone. It's not good for man to be alone. He's created to, be, to enter into relationship, just as the Son and the Father, by means of the Spirit, have had an eternal fellowship of relationship for all of eternity. He makes the world in such a way that it is created for relationship, and that's why when you come to church, you know, you see people getting married. You see babies being born. You see households, right? Because we're reflecting. We'll talk about that more as we get into redemption. All things are created through Him, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Paul has a particular emphasis here 
not only does he create the lowest things, he creates the grass, he even creates those bugs, much as we want to you know, avoid them sometimes in a fallen world. <clears throat> but he wants to focus on kind of the highest things. One of the problems that may have been going on in Colossae, maybe not directly in the church, but a threat that's kind of right outside the door. Um, you can come back to Sunday school next week and learn, learn a little bit more about that. But was something kind of trying to put another mediator in between God and people other than Christ. Some sort of power, some sort of dominion, some sort of Lord, whatever it was. Okay, And people are always trying to do that, right? Um, one, of the, one of the five pillars of Islam. Uh, you know, I believe in Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay, Mormonism, you know, you're not going to be standing before Jesus Christ on the last day. You're going to be standing before Joseph Smith. Whatever it is, okay, whether it's, it's Jews trying to put the law in the place of God or even the earthly temple, Jesus Christ is the one through whom all authorities are made. And so, therefore, He is the one that we are to trust. And, and part of what this means is that, you know, we as the people of God don't need to be afraid. Whether it's Xi or Putin or Biden or Trump or Reagan or Hitler or Stalin, whoever the big dogs are out there in the world, and they have real power, okay? They really harm people. They really hurt people. They really come after the people of God. Maybe not all of that list, but a lot of those guys. Ultimately, they are accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Right? The very people who nailed him to the cross, the scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. Why? Because he came back 40 years to judge them for what they did to him. That's the kind of power he has. That's the kind of authority he has. You serve the Lord of the world because he is the creator of the world. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Follow him. Declare him. You know, the fact that Jesus is Lord, again, it means he, he, he's created all the top dogs, it means He's created your neighbor. You know, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're not just declaring something about yourself. You're declaring something about the person that you're saying that to. They need to acknowledge His Lordship. We need to show how they can be reconciled to God, have peace with God through the work of His cross, because they are answerable to Him whether they realize it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. Again, everything that is created, whether it's this, this or that or that, when you look out at the vast reaches of space, the billions and billions of miles, when you look at the tiniest subatomic particle or string or whatever it's made up of, all of it is saying, I was made by the living God 
through His Son. I exist for the living God through His Son. I exist to give glory to the living God through His Son. And so when you, again, when you look out at the vast reaches of space, you shouldn't just see empty, dark matter and this impersonal universe that we're just kind of molecules in motion getting by. The universe is inherently is suffused with personality. The universe is crafted for relationship. You know, God makes things to be fruitful. You know, He makes plants to grow. He makes animals to procreate. He makes people not to live, you know, I know Americans are tempted by this, you know, the, the, that, that Jeremiah Johnson movie 50 years ago, right? The ideal life is to just go run off into the Rocky Mountains and be your rugged individualist, okay? Think how many people were involved in making that movie and filming it. There, Robert Redford wasn't alone out there in the wilderness. There's a camera following him around, okay? They're, they're, getting, they're taking a break from shooting the movie so that they can all eat lunch together. Okay, there's relationship happening in this movie about isolation and holding it up as an ideal. Because that's the way God has made the world. He's made it through His Son. The tri-personal God has made the world in such a way that the world exists for relationship. Now, of course, the problem is... <clears throat> F.F. Bruce puts it this way, For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also Creator, the origin and goal of all. Now, we've messed it up, right? Our sin... Uh, hey, the, the serpent tempted me and so I ate. The woman you gave me, she gave me <coughs> the fruit and so I ate. You know, right from the very beginning, dividing walls, separation, blame. And that's why our good God and Father, through whom He made the world, such that it exists for Him. He is the inheritor of it. it. It exists unto Him, right? I mean, look at this language. All things were created through Him and for Him. For Him. All of creation is heading towards its goal to find its fullness and its fruition in the eternal Son. Our good God, through whom He created the world, must then send His Son in order to fix it, in order to buy it back, in order to release it from the domain of darkness and to bring it into His kingdom where there's light and life and health and prosperity. And so not only is He the Lord of creation, He's the Lord of new creation. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, I want to say something here because I think based on this passage in Ephesians 4, 
We sometimes misunderstand what Paul means by head here because he uses the word body, and we think that Christ is like this part of the church, okay? And, and he's just, you know, waiting to have a body to kind of fill out who he is, okay? And I think that's a mistake, okay? The head of an organization, the head of a company, is the boss, often the one maybe who created the company. And that's what Paul means here. It doesn't mean that he's the top part of the body. It means that he's the one who's over the body, the one that, you know, from whom the body finds life. And if, and if you question me about that, and it's fine if you do, 1 Corinthians 12, right? The eye cannot say to the ear, that's the church being part of the physical head of the body, if you will. Okay, you can just look at that passage, I think, to understand what I'm trying to say. No, he is the one who, and, and, and part of the significance of this, one of the things about Colossians, which um, I mentioned this in Sunday school, you know, uh, J.B. Lightfoot said, Colossae is the least important city of, of any place that Paul writes a letter. He, he never even went there as far as we know, although he plans to go there in Philemon. Okay, it's this little podunk town. And yet, and yet, because the gospel has come to them, because they have had their sins forgiven in Christ, because they have believed in Jesus Christ, they too are part of this worldwide people of God that God is creating. As the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world, chapter 1, verse 6, <clears throat> it is also among you also. The gospel is going forth into all creation, right? We read that in our responsive reading. Verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation. The point is, the point is this. This new body, this new humanity, this new church, which is just a way of saying the people of God, right? It's referring to Israel being surrounded around Mount Sinai. The Kahal Adonai, the, the, the ecclesia, the gathering, God calls them out of uh, Egypt in order to be his people. They're surrounded around the mountain. And Paul's point is, is that now it's not just the children of Abraham. Now it's not just people gathered on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea in the land of Palestine. It's happening in Colossae. It's happening in Rome. It's happening in Corinth. It's happening in Moscow. It's happening in Vancouver. It's happening in Portland. It's happening in New York City. Okay? God is creating a new humanity that started in Jerusalem and went to Samaria and went to throughout the Roman Empire and then has been going around the world for the last 2,000 years. God is the cosmic creator in and through His Son and by His Son, and therefore He is creating a new humanity in His goal of redemption of taking back what had been lost through sin and Satan. Well, this was not an easy thing to do. It wasn't an automatic thing to do. And so it says also that he is the firstborn from the dead. Not only is he the heir of creation, the firstborn of creation, he is the firstborn from the dead. Because in order to accomplish this cosmic 
worldwide universal reconciliation. It took nothing less than the blood of the Creator God, of the Son of God, as He entered human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died a perfect atoning sacrifice. And because He was the righteous one, because He did not come to hang on that Roman cross for His own sins, for His own disobedience, but for the sins of the world, God, it was impossible for death to hold Him, Peter says in Acts chapter 2. God vindicated Him. He was justified in the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16. And so God released Him from the pangs of death. Your Holy One will not see corruption, Psalm 16. And so God releases him from death, and he becomes the firstborn of the dead, which again means that he is not only the one who has been resurrected, but he is the first fruits, as Paul says elsewhere, of a whole vast resurrection harvest. Brothers and sisters, do you want life after death? Because guess what? You're going to die. You want life after death? Do you want your decaying body raised from the grave? This is the one you go to. Because eternal life, resurrection life, happens in Him and through Him because it has happened to Him. And it didn't happen to Himself for himself alone, he is the first fruits. He is what I like to say is the foreshadowing and the forecasting of the final resurrection. When you look at what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday, when you look at what happened to him and God raising him from the dead, well, Paul puts it like this in just a few pages back in Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even to subject all things to Himself. You look to Him for eternal life because He has been granted eternal life and He has been granted it on behalf of all of His people. And so not only do you not need to be afraid of the big shots, you don't need to be afraid of the grave. You don't need to be afraid of the tomb. Yeah, it may be painful. You might get cancer. But it's a light and momentary affliction that is not worth being compared to an eternal glory that far outweighs it. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and then he says, verse 19, In Him it was pleased all the fullness of God to dwell. <clears throat> now, a lot of scholars, they get hung up on this word fullness because they want to say that Paul's addressing Gnosticism in chapter 2, and those guys talked about fullness, and yeah, maybe. But uh, I picked up a really good 
commentary by Greg Beal, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where I attended. Um, he wasn't there when I was there. He's only been there more recently. And he notes that the language here seems to be a direct allusion to Psalm 68. <clears throat> Psalm 68. And so I'm going to turn back there and read this to you so I get this quoted correctly. And, and Psalm 68 is, is an important for Psalm, for. Paul in another context, because it's the same passage where he says, <clears throat> uh, Christ ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. Ephesians chapter 4, talking about the gifts of apostles and prophets and, and evangelists and pastor teachers. Um, and that's a direct reference to Psalm 68. This is more of an indirect reference or an allusion, we might say, to verse 16. Um, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for His abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So that word desired and that word abode, when you look at the, the Greek Old Testament, those are the exact two words that now show up here in Colossians 1.19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, was pleased to dwell, the mount that God desired for his abode. And of course, that mountain in uh, Psalm 68 is talking about Mount Zion, the place where uh, eventually the, the tabernacle of David would be, and then the temple of Solomon would be, indicating the presence of God among his people and the place that you would especially go three times a year in order to meet with God and to enjoy his presence as a, uh, in a special way. And of course, Paul's point is, just like it is in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word tabernacled among us and we have beheld His glory. John chapter 2, you know, tear down this, this uh, building and rebuild it in three days. And of course, John gives us this little, but the temple he was speaking of was the temple of His body. Paul's point is this. Everything that, that the temple represented in terms of meeting with God, enjoying the presence of God, dwelling with God, right? Our elder this morning, um, <clears throat> my soul thirsts for you as in a dry, dying land. When can I go and meet with God? You know, David's stuck out there in the desert being chased by Saul. He wants to be able to go to Shiloh or wherever the tabernacle was at that time and meet with God in a special way. And the point is, is that everything that was an earthly copy in the temple, everything it represented is fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. When you come here, gathered and assembled in the name of Christ, trusting in Christ, seeking to glorify Christ, you are meeting with the creator of the universe. You are meeting with the living God. You are renewing covenant with the God who has called you out of darkness into the kingdom of his son. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You know, you don't have to go to whatever special place these people are telling you that you have to go, okay? You assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why a lot of liturgies 
you know, begin with in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to remind us that we are gathering as Christian people to meet the Christian God who is nothing less than the creator of the universe. To enjoy fellowship with Him. And that one day, you know, Revelation 21, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will wipe away that, that, that which we experienced this morning in a very special, important way will one day be unbroken without interruption, unceasing, forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now, again, we need to remember that these are gospel realities. They come to us through the gospel, and so that's why Paul closes here, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. This doesn't just happen automatically. This doesn't just happen because God just winks at everybody and says, oh, it's no big deal. Again, it took nothing less than the one through whom he made the world's through the one who is the the heir of all of creation, that one had to humble himself. That one had to suffer. That one had to be despised and rejected of men. And he had to hang on a cross where he's rejected by the earth and he's rejected, in a sense, by heaven so that all of earth and all of heaven, all those for whom he suffered, all those who will respond in faith to the gospel, which is a whole world, a vast multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation as the gospel goes forth, only through Him. And so we could say that this is a very universal, cosmic agenda that God has through a particular means through a particular foundation, which is Christ, the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, that one. And so, yes, it's for all people. It's for every land. It's for all time. But it is for those who will say, yes, that's what I need. Because the next verse goes on to say, you were hostile to God. You know, you were by nature one who, who didn't want to have anything to do with your Creator. You're suppressing the knowledge of the truth, it says in Romans chapter 1. You're walking contrary. You're walking the broad path that leads to destruction. And it is only through this cosmic, crucified Christ that you can be put back on the narrow path that leads to life. It's for everybody. Whether you're the highest of the high, whether you're one of those powers and dominions, you know, that's one of the reasons why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I ask first of all that you pray for kings and those in authority, right? And that's specifically that you're praying that, that you know, she and Putin and, you know, King Abdullah of whatever country in the Middle East, okay, and Biden and Trump and Kamala Harris, you know, that they will bow the knee to King Jesus. 
that they will realize that they too are lost, that as much power as they have, as much as they think that they can sustain their own lives and exert their own power, they too are creatures of the living God. They too can only find life in Christ. They too must bow the knee to Him. They too must depend and acknowledge Him. Now, as we think about this, and I just want to finish up with this. If all things are made through Christ and He's reconciling all things, that means God has an interest in you and not just your spirit. He's not just waiting to kind of wait for you to die and whisk you off to an ethereal, incorporeal existence. No, God has made you body and soul, and He's redeeming you body and soul, and so therefore He has interest in you as a creature, as an entire creature, and He's interested in the things you do. I'm going to talk about this more during the supper, but, you know... The fact that you bring a tithe here this morning means that God is redeeming your work. The fact that you take time off from your work to come and assemble with the people of God means that God is redeeming your work. Six days you shall labor, and the seventh you rest, and and it's a holy rest where you assemble with the people of God. The fact that you bring your children to be baptized means that God is redeeming your family. He's not just interested in in snatching a few souls from the fire. He wants to transform your life, and as He transforms the lives of believers, transform the world. Cause people to going into business where it's completely selfish and serving yourselves, to where you go into business to serve your community, and the community is benefited. And they ask themselves, why is this guy making all of us productive, not just himself? Because he serves King Jesus. You can read the end of Colossians 3 to hear about that. So, or, or think about this. Think about marriage, right? <laughs> you know, when we say God created Adam and Eve, He didn't create Adam and Steve, <laughs> Right? That's because Jesus Christ was actually the ones through whom they were created, Adam and Eve, and He died to prepare a bride for Himself, not a husband, to prepare a bride for Himself. And so our fight about marriage is about the redemption of human relationships in which there can be fruitfulness, in which there can be stability, in which there can be actual, you know, read about the household code in, in Colossians 3 or Ephesians chapter 5. You know, your pastor talks about it a lot in his books. Okay? God is interested in these things. He's not just interested in disembodied souls. He doesn't just like, you know... Don't polish brass on a sinking ship, right? That's what some Christians were saying 100 years ago, okay? No. 
The Creator, the Governor, the Preserver, the Redeemer is interested in what we're doing. Now, it always has to have the Gospel at the forefront of it, right? But the Gospel is not just declaring that you're forgiven, it's declaring that you're reconciled, and reconciled as a whole person in all the callings that God gives to you as a parent, as a spouse, as a, as a son or daughter, as a worker, as a boss, as a community member, as a voter, as a political, whatever it is, okay? God is in the business of reconciling and redeeming and transforming and rescuing back and, and making things in such a way through the gospel that, in a sense, his law can become the pattern for how we conduct ourselves not just as individuals, but as families and as communities. <clears throat> so let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're involved in something big. A big origin, creator, a big goal, all things created for Him, a big project, things in heaven and things on earth being reconciled, being made peace with God. You know, and so even though broad is the path to destruction, big is the agenda that God has for redemption. And that's where you and I are. Take courage, stay committed. Think in this new year about new ways that you might have for promoting what can only bring true peace to people, what can only bring true transformation and reconciliation to people, not only within this building, but in the communities where we live as well. As Paul will say here at the end of the chapter, Him we proclaim teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what we're about. And not only do we want it for ourselves, but we want it for our neighbors and our families and our communities as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.